We are going to get into our message today, and we are in week five now of our series called Words Matter. And if you haven't been here the last few weeks, let me just get you up to speed very quickly here. So we said at the beginning of this series that what this is all about is helping us better understand spiritual language, which is to say that the truth is a lot of times as we read through scripture or even as we're talking about these things or singing about these things, we often don't really know what these things actually mean, right? A lot of times we just skip right over it. We don't truly understand. And so we have to begin to dig in and really see these things for what they are, for what the biblical writers actually intended them to be so that we can truly understand who God is and who we are in response to that. And so we've been trying to break down some of those walls slowly but surely. And so we've talked about uh, the spiritual concept of love love. We've talked about faith. We talked about neighbor. Last week, we talked about Christ, like what that actually means and how we can apply it to our lives. And so we're going to continue down this path today. Um, I will tell you, we have decided to extend this series a little bit. And so um, this is going to carry us all the way through March, basically up to Easter. And so we got a lot of work to do and hopefully a lot to learn in and through it, but I am excited. And, uh, and so let's get into our message today. I will tell you right out of the gate that today is a very different approach in terms of how we're going to attack this concept, okay? Throwing you a bit of a curveball because today is going to be much more conceptual in our strategy, meaning we're not really going to be digging into like the Greek language. We're not really going to be digging in even to like the first century context of these things. I just want to talk about what I believe is a very important spiritual concept that we need to better understand and learn how to deal with, okay? And so it's going to be a pretty straightforward approach, but I think it is necessary for our understanding. So we're going to jump right in. We're not going to waste any time today. The fifth word of our series is the word or concept we call disappointment. All right, the word, the concept of disappointment. This is what I want to unpack, dig into, and see what we can learn from this. And as I said, we're not really going to be digging into the original language because the truth is the Greek word for disappointment, or at least the best way that we understand it today, is not even in the New Testament. Okay, so to dig in and study that would be pretty useless. It's not in there. However, we do see a lot of very similar ideas throughout Scripture. For instance, we see ideas like affliction, distress, brokenheartedness. Um, these things do point to a certain angle of the idea of disappointment. Additionally, we see ideas like anxiety. Or things like worry, these point to another angle of disappointment and how we experience it. And interestingly, all of these ideas point us in the same exact direction, all right? I wish we had time today to like go piece by piece so you could see how consistent this is, but all of these point to the same exact conclusion that we're going to land on today, and so it's pretty neat to see how that works itself out. But let's begin here, all right? Let's start with what is disappointment? Like when we say that word, what exactly do we mean in terms of how it works and how it's felt? And so here is, I think, the best way to describe this idea, and that is disappointment 
is the degree to which our expectations fall short of reality. All right, that's what disappointment is. And I'm going to repeat that just so you can kind of soak that in for a moment. Disappointment is the degree. So it's like a, a sliding scale, right? Sometimes we experience a lot, sometimes a little. The degree to which our expectations fall short of reality. So if you study this concept at all, and especially modern day studies, as we learn more and more about the brain and how it works and how our bodies respond to it, you will learn two things about this. Number one is that it's almost entirely attached to expectation or to anticipation. And the second thing is that disappointment is a physiological response. Now, what that means is that this is not simply like an emotion. Or, or simply a thought that runs through our heads. Our entire bodies are responding to this experience, this feeling that we call disappointment. In fact, here's how we're learning this works, and we've talked a little bit about this before, but your brain is a forecasting machine, right? It is constantly forecasting what you might or might not experience in any given situation. And typically, it's using past experience to determine future experience. So for example, um, this meal was great last time, so I'm anticipating it will be great again, right? Or, or this trip was a blast last time, so I'm expecting it will be a blast again. Our brains are literally doing this with every little detail of every single day. Now, when your brain begins to forecast that something good is about to happen, it generates a chemical called dopamine. All right, if you're not familiar with that, they simply call this the pleasure chemical. All right, it's what leads to the feeling of excitement, the feeling of joy, a sense of euphoria. All of that is a chemical response within our bodies. And so, if that good forecast turns into reality, you get a nice big shot of dopamine, right? Feels really good. You get this sense of joy and, and excitement. But the biggest rush of dopamine comes when you have low expectations of something and it ends up better than expected, right? I don't know if you've had this experience before, but I can uh, think of several times where I've gone to the movie theater and as I'm walking into the theater, I will literally have the thought, I have no idea what to expect from this movie, right? Like this could be a complete waste of my entire afternoon. But of course, as we get into the next hour and a half, two hours, whatever it is, the movie's really good, right? And I'm, I'm laughing or I'm crying or whatever it is, I'm really engaged. And at the end of that, I'm walking out like with this sense of euphoria, like that was amazing, right? Researchers call this a positive prediction error, in other words, your brain forecasted incorrectly, but in a really positive way. It, it exceeded expectations, and so the dopamine comes rushing in. Unfortunately, the caveat is we also have negative prediction errors as well. And in fact, one of the hardest dopamine crashes that you can experience in life is when you have high expectations of something and it underdelivers, right? Maybe something unexpected happens. Maybe somebody fails you. Maybe somebody doesn't follow through. And as a result, you experience this emotional crash. And the crazy part about this is research shows that in these moments, not only do we have this sense of, of feeling let down, but our brains literally register it as physical pain. Like physiologically, our brains are telling us you are hurting that's how powerful this is, and that's what we call disappointment. Now, 
if this specific word isn't in scripture, then why is it relevant to our spiritual understanding, right? Why, why are we even talking about this within this series? Well, because, listen, disappointment is a very real and a potentially crippling aspect of our spiritual journeys. That's the truth. And if we don't know how to deal with this, if we don't know how to understand this, it can lead us down some very, very dangerous pathways, okay? Maybe the best example that we see of this in Scripture is a story that we read uh, at the tail end of every one of our gospel accounts. So it's actually rare that we see something in every single gospel, but this is one of the examples. And this is just days before Jesus is going to be charged guilty and eventually taken to the cross. Okay, So days before, he and his disciples are heading to the city of Jerusalem. And as they're approaching, Jesus takes kind of an odd approach, at least depending on what we've learned from him previously, all right? Because instead of like slipping into the city and, and kind of flying under the radar like you might expect, instead, he asks two of his disciples to go and get a donkey and a colt, all right? Go get these animals, bring them back to me. And so sure enough, they follow orders, they get the animals, they bring them back. Jesus hops onto the donkey and he heads into the city. Now, this is unexpected. This is not what you would think Jesus would do, but what's even more unexpected is the people's response to that. Because we know at this point that, that rumors are swirling about who Jesus is, and there are a lot of different opinions, a lot of different thoughts on what he might be up to, and yet as he enters the city, they're throwing a party for him. They're, they're celebrating, they're singing songs to him, they're laying out their coats as he walks by, they're cutting off palm branches and they're waving them and they're laying him at his feet, like this big celebration as Jesus comes into the city. In fact, one of the gospel accounts says that the city was in turmoil. That Greek word means seismic. In other words, the city was like shaking with anticipation as Jesus comes in. Now, you might ask the question, why would they respond that way? What, what are they doing? And there's a clear answer, and that is expectations. They have certain expectations of who Jesus might be and what he might be up to. See, Jesus had just come from a town called Bethany where he raised a man from the dead. All right, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, a lot of us have heard that many times, so that just went in one ear and right out the other, right? But can you imagine living in that day and age and rumors begin to swirl with eyewitness accounts, some guy raised a dude from the dead. Like, can you imagine what in the world that would begin to mean and what would begin to churn in your brain? But not only that, he, he leaves Bethany, he heads through Jericho, and on his way out, he heals a couple of blind men. But not just blind men, blind men who are proclaiming that he is the Messiah. And so as Jesus heads into Jerusalem, anticipation is building. Dopamine levels are rising. The Messiah might be here. This might actually be our guy. And how do we know that this is what they're thinking? Well, because everything they are doing points to that, okay? So let me give you some background information so you can understand what I mean. About 200 years prior to this, prior to, to Jesus, we see almost the exact same scene 
Almost the exact same thing is happening as a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus enters into the city, okay? And they are celebrating this man because he has just vanquished their enemy. He has defeated the Syrian king. He has recaptured the temple. He has driven out the pagans. And so expectation is Jesus is here to do the same. He's going to defeat. He's going to drive out the Romans. And so let's throw a party. It's time to celebrate, right? In fact, the song they're singing comes from Psalm 118, where it speaks of an enemy swarming only for God to sweep in with a mighty hand to overcome. Even even him being on a donkey is a direct reference to Zechariah 9.9, where it says, See, your king is coming to you, triumphant and victorious, riding on a donkey. I mean, it's clear what's happening here, right? A savior has come who's going to expel Rome and he's going to bring Israel back to prominence. In fact, you can imagine that evening, like around the dinner table, the type of conversations that they were having with one another. Like, this is amazing. He was on a donkey and everything. Like, this is happening, right? Rome is about to be conquered and Israel is well on its way. And yet, this is a story, such a great example of how messy things can get when we cast our assumptions and our expectations onto God. Because the truth is, to some degree, their expectations were warranted, right? To some degree, that's the truth. Psalm 118 does talk about God destroying enemies. It does. Zechariah 9.9 does talk about the victorious Messiah riding on a donkey. It says those things. The problem is the bigger context in both of those chapters, listen, is that it speaks of a loving God who is bringing peace to the nations. That's the greater context. In other words, he wasn't sending the Messiah to destroy. He was sending him to restore. And yet, through selective reading and therefore selective understanding, they had completely missed the point, therefore completely missing what God was actually up to. And what came rushing in was disappointment. That's what happened. Now, now here's the thing. Thousands of years later, we can read about this. We can talk about this, and if we're not careful, we can kind of scoff at them for this, right? Roll our eyes at their ignorance and their stupidity. What in the world were they thinking? But of course, the truth is, is this very much applies to us today, right? Can we just be honest? I mean, not, not much has really changed because even the best of us are constantly projecting expectations onto God. This is who he is. This is how he will, he'll do things. This is how he'll act in this situation. We are almost constantly doing that. And the problem is we are all very much still growing in the knowledge of who he is, which is to say to some degree, we are all casting God in an image of who we think he is, or maybe even an image of who we want him to be. Almost every single one of us fall prey to this. And so as a result, some of us do think of God as like this divine genie who's going to give us everything we want. Everything that we desire, we wouldn't put it that way. Truth is, is that's how we think about him. That's what we expect from him. Some of us think of him as like this cosmic bodyguard. He's going to protect us from from every single pain. At all costs, he's going to protect us, right? Some think of him as like this heavenly accountant who's going to take care of every single one of your financial needs. We all have these expectations, even these images of who God is to us. And the truth is, is that more often than not, kind of works out pretty well for us, at least here in, in our context. I mean, seems to work just fine as long as God seems to do what, what we want God to do, as long as God seems to do what we expect him to do. And then the problem is, is as soon as he doesn't conform to our expectations, we spiral out of control. He doesn't grant what we want in a situation. We become utterly confused. What is going on? What is happening, right? 
He doesn't protect us from the pain, and in comes the uncertainty of who he is. The negative prediction error plummets us into doubt, into disappointment, and if we're not careful, into distrust. This is not the God that I signed up for. This is not who I thought God was when I began this journey. Isn't that so often where we find ourselves, if we're being honest? In fact, an author recently wrote this, perhaps the greatest threat to faith is not doubting God, but rather being disappointed with him. Oftentimes, that is where we find ourselves. And that is exactly what's happening in the story we just talked about. The people have their expectations, and yet God will be God. And so as a result, what began with excitement ends with execution. What began with celebration ends in crucifixion. What begins with human expectations ends with human failure. And again, we can shake our heads at that, right? scoff at them for their erratic behavior. What are they doing? But it's the exact same way with us today. The exact same way. Sure, I'll, I'll serve Jesus. Yeah, no, no question about it. Well, until he, I, I realized he said, I got to love my enemies. Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll obey Christ. Well, until he tells me to sell everything I own and follow him. Sure, I'll submit to Jesus. Well, until he doesn't conform to my expectations. Isn't that human nature? So often that's where we find ourselves. And so let me just kind of spoil the surprise for you now. God does not intend to meet our expectations. He intends to meet our needs. That's who God is, and that is what he's up to. But here's the thing. Even that sounds pretty good, right? He'll, he'll supply our needs. Sounds great until we realize what we think we need is so different from what he knows we need. And yet again, we get ourselves in trouble. Let me give you a few examples of how this works. Paul says this in Philippians 4.19. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. We read that. We sing about that. Sounds awesome. That is amazing. I, I'm into that type of God until we realize Paul's writing that as he's imprisoned for his faith. And then it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. What type of needs are we talking about? What type of God are we talking about here? We do the same exact thing with Joseph in Genesis 50, 20. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result. Again, sounds great. We're going to sing about it. We're going to declare about it until we realize what good is in this situation involved being abandoned by his family, sold into slavery, imprisoned for years. See, see, listen, God gives us these promises to fulfill our needs, right? To turn things for our good. But in our culture, we have no idea what that even means. No idea. What are our true needs? We don't even know where to begin. What, what does God view as good? We have no idea. And yet again, our expectations lead to disappointment. Over and over again, this is where we find ourselves. And so we're left with this question. What do we do? When we find ourselves in these situations, when we have these feelings that are rising up, what do we do? And here's where we have to start. We have to understand that disappointments are simply opportunities to learn. In fact, I would argue the best way that you can learn about God and what he's really up to in your life is often through your disappointments. We see this over and over and over again in scripture. People experiencing immense disappointment and yet allowing it to shape them in a way that changes their lives and the lives around them. That's what they do. The question is, how do they do it, right? And so let's talk about two things in particular that we can apply in these scenarios. And here's the truth. I'll tell you this ahead of time. These aren't gonna rock your world, all right? These two things aren't gonna be like, whoa, I've never heard that before. But a lot of times the foundational things are that way. 
And, and when we treat them like, ah, oh, whatever, we've heard that before, we're not applying them in the way that we need to. And so here's what I would encourage you to do. I don't care if you've heard these things a million times. Write them down. Put them on your refrigerator. Put them on your computer screen. Uh, speak them out every morning of your life. Whatever you have to do to walk in this, do it. And I'm being serious about that. We have to begin to commit to these things. Here is number one. The first thing that you need to do is you need to allow disappointment to increase your knowledge of and intimacy with God. All right? I want you to think about that. Allow your disappointment to increase your knowledge of and intimacy with God. Here's the truth of the matter. If we are experiencing disappointment in our lives, we have simply made a wrong assumption about who God is and or what he might be up to in a given situation. That is what is happening. Now, that sounds pretty simple, but it's actually pretty terrifying if you think about it. Like, like think about it for a moment. Sometimes it's unbelievably scary to realize that this trial that you're in, this pain you're feeling, this test you're going through might actually be God at work. Isn't that a scary thought to have? That actually might be God at work. Now, am I saying that he is the cause of those things? Not necessarily, but it does say that God disciplines those who he loves, which is to say that, that he's working in the madness. He's up to something, and it's our job to be intentional enough to try to understand what is going on. We have to be intentional in these moments. See, the worst thing you can do with disappointment is ignore it. That's the worst thing you can do because then you can't grow from it. And so instead, what we have to do is we have to learn how to sit with these things. We have to learn how to meditate on these things in the presence of God. That's what we have to do. And see, this is one of the reasons we struggle so much with it today because we're just so reactionary about everything in our lives, aren't we? We're just so reactionary. In fact, this time last year, we were right in the middle of our series on the ruthless elimination of hurry, and it applies so well here. We are all so sped up. We're all in such a hurry. All we have time for is our immediate reactions. So whatever I feel in the moment is what's gonna shape my perspective. Whatever I feel in the moment is how I'm going to respond. The problem is typically that immediate reaction is full of anger, it's full of fear, it's full of discouragement, and then we allow those things to rule and govern our lives and our perspectives. That's so often how we treat things today. So listen, one of the best things we can do with disappointment is slow down. That, that is so difficult, oftentimes so painful, but we have to process what's going on with the help of God. We, we have to separate that physiological response from our spiritual response and see where it leads us. See what it shows us about what God is really doing and how we can rightly respond to. We have to take our time through that process. The, the best example we have of this is Jesus. This is exactly what he does. One of the biggest disappointments in his entire life is when he finds out that John the Baptist has been killed. This is his guy. I mean, this is somebody he cares about so deeply. He has just found out that he has been murdered. Can you imagine the disappointment? Can you imagine the despair? And what does Jesus do? It says that he retreats, he goes to a secluded place, and he processes it in the presence of the Father. He takes his time, he processes it. He doesn't have immediate reaction, he processes it. And if you go on to read the rest of Matthew 14, you will see just how effective that approach is because what he goes on to do next is unbelievable. If you handle these things correctly, you will be amazed at the final result. Now, now here's the amazing thing about intimacy with God. Okay, listen, not only is it the place where we can slow down 
and we can process things, which is great, right? That's necessary. We need to do that today. If you're not doing that, do it. Slow down, process things in the presence of God. But it's not only that, it's the place where we truly come to know who he is. In other words, the more you come to know who God is, then the more time that you spend with him, the less disillusioned you are about who you think he is and what you think he might be up to. In other words, expectations change with experience. That's true of every relationship in our lives, right? Your marriage, your your friendships, every relationship, expectations will change with experience. And this is one of the fundamental benefits of a deeper and deeper relationship with God. The more you get to know him, the better you will understand what he is truly up to. In fact, think about it. How much of the disappointment in your life is because you don't truly know who God is? Think about it. How much of the pain that you've been feeling and you've been going through is simply because you're not spending enough time with him. And so you don't know what to expect from him. So often this is what is going on. And so listen, if you're dealing with disappointment, let it simply be a reminder to draw closer. Let it simply be a reminder to to go deeper in your relationship with him. Get to know him more. Spend more time with him and see if that doesn't change your perspective over the course of time. Okay, that is the first response. Here is the second thing. You need to allow disappointment to increase your faith in God. This is a big one. Allow disappointment to increase your faith in God. See, here's the thing. When we place expectations on God, it will always be a recipe for resentment. When we put expectations on him, that is what's gonna happen. But when we create openness and when we allow trust to come in, that is gonna lead us to faith. And so what we have to understand is that that faith is better than our expectations. Faith over expectations, that should be our motto. But here's the interesting thing about that. We often think of those two as the same, right? Faith is expectation. Expectation is faith. But remember what we talked about a few weeks ago. Faith is not like a commodity that we have. It is relational, which is to say that we put our faith in Christ regardless of any other variables that are in play. That's what faith is about. And see, this is the biggest difference between faith and expectation. Expectation is us throwing something onto God while faith is accepting what he throws onto us. That's the biggest difference, and that's where we will learn to succeed in our lives, and in our relationship with him. We have to stay rooted in Christ and allow that to set our expectations. Let me say that again. We have to remain rooted in Christ and allow that to set our expectation, which for the record is not to say that we should have low expectations. Let me make that very clear. I don't think that squares up with scripture at all. Jesus says things like, with God, all things are possible. Right? Paul says things like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It doesn't seem like he's setting very low expectations at all. But of course, here is the key to both of those scriptures. With God, all things are possible. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so again, it's our ability to abide in Christ, to stay rooted in him that should ultimately determine our expectations. Okay? So listen, if you're a Christ follower, if, if that's who you are, if that's who you declare to be, and you want to know what your expectations should be, I'll give it to you right here, okay? You ready for this? Get ready for this. Regardless of the situation that you find yourself in, 
regardless of the storm that might be brewing, regardless of the battle you might be going through, regardless of what you get or what you don't get as a Christ follower, here is the expectation. He is with you and that is enough. He is with you and that is enough. That's the bottom line. And you have to secure that in your heart and in your mind. That's what it means to rest in him. He is enough. That's the bottom line. Like you want to know the scriptures that should set our expectation? Let let me give you a few of these real, real quick. Do not fear for I am with you. Don't be discouraged. I am with you wherever you go. I am the one who goes with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am with you even to the end of the age. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. That's the expectation. He is with us and that is sufficient. And by the way, that's faith. That's, that's exactly what faith is, to find him as the priority, to seek him first and allow everything else to take place. That's what faith is. And this is the good and right response. And so here's how I want to, to end this. I mentioned in our series opener that I read a book last year that kind of spurred this whole idea of words mattering and how we need to understand them. And in the book, he does talk about this idea of disappointment. And uh, the way that he ends this chapter It's just, it's so amazing. I can't put it any better myself. And so I just wanna read this for you. And so we'll put it on the screen if you wanna read it, if that helps, or if you need to close your eyes to like really soak it in, do whatever you need to do. But this is how he finishes this chapter. He says, I'm dismantling mirages I've constructed about God and who I am in response to that. I have traded these lies for a truth that in times of difficulty, God offers his presence, not a parachute. What we experience as disappointment is an invitation to give up holding tight to what we hope is true, to stop trying to cast God in our image, to let God be who God is, not who we wish God would be. The choice is ours, and who knows, if we decide to step off the dopamine roller coaster long enough, maybe we'll find ourselves at the foot of a cross, giving up all we have for the one who gave up everything for us. That is the proper response to disappointment, that we would seek him first, we would lay everything at his feet and trust that that is sufficient. He is with us and that's the only thing that matters. I'm going through the pain, I'm going through the disappointment, it doesn't make sense to me. He is with me and that is all that matters. That is the bottom line as we deal with disappointment. Please stand with me. Now, again, I know that this word is not specifically in scripture, but I'm telling you, this is something that is so important for our lives and how we deal with it. Because here's the the truth. Listen closely. I know we're wrapping up, but, but give me your attention for just another minute or so. Here's the truth of the matter. How we respond in moments like this, when we talk about disappointment, when we talk about fear, when we talk about discouragement, how we respond is one of the shaping factors of who we are as Christians. That is the truth. Because here's the thing, so much of this life comes down to coping with the things that are happening around us. So much of this life comes down to how we regulate internally what is happening externally. And so the question is, how are you coping with those things? What what are you reaching for to to regulate what is going on inside of you? I want you to think about that. 
Like, I, I really want you to be honest with yourself. Do, do you reach for people when those things come up? Do you reach for money when those things come up? Do you reach for busyness? Do you reach for laziness? What are you reaching for to cope with these things? Because the ultimate call as a Christ follower is that we simply reach for Christ knowing that he's sufficient. If I have a bad day, I reach for Christ. If I have a good day, I reach for Christ. If I don't get what I want, I reach for Christ. If I do get what I want, I reach for Christ. If I feel great, I'll reach for Christ. If I'm in pain, I'll reach for Christ. Over and over again, every moment of every day, I will reach for him. That's what it means to follow him. Now, it's not to say that any of those other things are inherently bad things. It just begs the question, what are you putting your faith in? What are you putting your hope in? What are you putting your trust in? These are important questions to consider in this life. And I'm imploring you, if you're not putting those things in Christ, change that today. Change that tomorrow. Change that the next day. Because here's the thing with this. I can talk about this all day, acting like this is so easy, right? Ah, dealing with disappointment, no problem. But when it strikes, it hurts. When it strikes, it can cripple us. I don't know how I can take another step. I don't, I don't know how I can wake up tomorrow morning. So here's what you're gonna have to do every moment of every day. Commit. I trust you. I know that you're with me. I know you'll never leave me. And that's good enough for me. I know you'll carry me through. I know you'll be my refuge. I know you'll be my strength. I trust in you. I wasn't kidding when I said every morning you wake up, speak that out. Every single moment of every single day, we have to put our trust in him.